Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 136th Shut Up and Sit Down podcast, a podcast about board games we like, board games we might not like, board games we want to talk to you about. I'm joined today by Mr. Quinton Smith. Hello, but what's your name? Who are you? No, I'm doing Tom first. Who's Tom? Hello, I'm Tom, and I'm here. But tell me, Ava, what is your... Wait, oh, no! (laughs) I'm Ava Foxport. We got there. Um, And I appear to be a little bit high energy. Sorry about that. I hope we can keep that up, because we might need it. Well, you are going to need high energy to talk about these two games, aren't we? Because they're both pretty grim. Before we started recording, we were just discussing that they're both grim in different ways indeed so today we are talking about anno 1800 a martin wallace game about colonialism and making little cubes go into the right places and kind of like destroying your brain slowly and we're going to be talking about stroganoff a game about going hunting and just killing lots and lots of animals (laughs) in a very specific order (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, I mean, it, it, don't forget that in Stroganoff, you, yes, you do kill many animals, but then you also write a song about it. Ah, that's yes, true. yes. That's, uh, that's definitely a significantly less emphasized portion of the game. <laughs> uh, yeah. But we'll get into that. I feel like we should have some bit of like color or flavor before we go into the sting. What do you two think? I don't know. I feel like that was all a bit too much and we need something to kind of like ease it down. I was really shouty. I don't know where that came no, from. No, it was okay. good. It was good energy. I feel like the place that the sting will go will be just fine. <laughs> Tom! No. Hey, Tom, why don't you tell us? I'm just unhinging my jaw. (laughs) Tom Brewster, can you talk to us just a little bit about Anno 1800 by Martin Wallace? I can tell you all about Anno 1800, the board game by Martin Wallace. Because we've been playing a couple games of this recently at different player counts. That's what you should do when you review a board game is play it sometimes and think about it lots. And I'm going to tell the people at home, with your permission, Ava, how you play the game of Anno 1800, the board game. I'll allow it. (laughs) In Anno 1800, you are savvy business people going to some islands, which we'll talk about the whole process of how that's, you know, fine. Spoiler, (laughs) it's not fine. (laughs) Doing some industry, directing some workers to their workstations and building some industries. So at the start of a game of Anno 1800, everyone starts with the same little board in front of them and a collection of workers and represented by little cubes and cards that correspond to these workers that you hold in your hand. You start with three flavors of little worker cubes, uh, salt and vinegar, cheese and onion. No, no, it's not true. No, it is true because the colors match. Salt and vinegar for your farmers, cheese and onion for your workers ready salted for your craftspeople's i feel like for the americans listening to this you know pre-brexit <laughs> we could make jokes about being quaint but now britain's like international standing is so poor that we can't be the quaint island anymore these jokes are just you know do they you're, you're walking on thin ice I, if they're lay they're lays elsewhere walkers crisps aren't they they don't even have the same flavors you understand wait a lays, is not a lays the same thing you... as walkers yeah they've got the same logo haven't they <laughs> This this this, this needs to far. go, please, for the love no, of God. This has Tom. to stay. This has to stay. Oh no. no! Because then you can extend it. Because then you get two other kinds of workers: engineers and investors, which are Worcester sauce and hint of salt. Uh, it works perfectly. <laughs> it works perfectly. So it's staying in, Quint. 
Okay. Hint, <laughs> Hint of salt, of salt is that a isn't, isn't a flavour. It is. It is. It's like the dieter's choice walkers. It's a lovely teal colour. I, I don't. I don't think you're right. I don't think you're right. Anyway, so you have these different kinds of workers uh, that relate to the crisp flavours, and they can go on various spaces on your board that represent various industries. So your green little farmer cubes can go on wood spaces or pig spaces, or your craftspeople can go on giant steel beam spaces, and they're all colour coded for specific workers on your things. Why are you putting workers on these spaces? Well. You can use those starting materials on your board to buy a variety of sick attachments. You might decide <laughs> that you want to produce some canned meat. So you make a canned meat factory using your pig and some iron or some schnapps so you, with your potatoes and coal. So you make a schnapps factory or you want a big bag of cigars. So you make a cigar factory. And these are all little tiles that you're socketing onto your little player board. And why are you doing any of that? Well, you're doing that because you want to appease your workers, which are the cards that are in your hand and fulfilling those needs on the top of each of their cards. So a lady might want the canned meat and some schnapps. If you appease those needs, that worker will go into your score pile for end game points and potentially net you some bonuses along the way, like more workers and more cards that you fulfill for more points. And that's like the core loop of Anno, right? You've got these cards in your hand. You want to fulfill their needs by building industries. And then you put workers on those industries to fulfill those needs. And as you get more complicated pop populations, their needs get more and more extravagant and expensive. And that is the basics of the game. And we should probably take a little bit of a detour here to talk about how nifty and quick that whole process is. Because it's very fast once you start playing. It's very quick, but it is also, it occasionally grinds to halt in this way that is just like, kind of like, oh my god i have so many things to think about because there's this interesting <laughs> thing of like it's not certainly on your first play it's not very obvious exactly what the puzzle is in a way that is it's normally a bit more clear with a game it's like right okay i'm trying to do this so i'm trying to get this thing like you're actually trying to do lots and lots of different things represented by these cards you've got in your hand and these very specific needs and then the central board with all of these buildings is sort of like a tech tree that you're picking your way through. So that's the long-term decision. But on the actual moment, in each turn, you're just doing this tiny, tiny thing. Like it tends to be like, right, it, it, pretty much every building, certainly at the beginning of the game, just wants two things. So you've got to find two workers that will go onto two of the little QB worker bits that will go onto the right places to fulfill two needs that gets you a building but the thing that happens that is weird is once you've built that you kind of you almost don't need to worry about it again because you know that you've just you've opened up those worker slots that means that you are going to be able to get that whenever you need it unless someone else has built all of the stuff which is another one of these weird little wrinkles that's in there is that there are only two of each building at any player count and you can play this with up to four people which means that beyond two players you're going to not have everything that you need and you're going to have to be trading. And so all of these options are always available to you in a way that means that you're like pulling at different threads and trying to build something enormous out of it. And I'm dreadful at it and keep on getting caught in <laughs> like attempting to do things that need the game to be slightly longer than it is because like, oh, there's, there's so many weird little details about this because the whole thing is the game ends when somebody empties their hand and early on in the game in particular you're actually pulling new cards out all of the time when you're fulfilling the needs of people like if you do something that gets you more of your ready sorted engineers they're not engineers work 
craftsman, craftsman. ready sorted craftsman, you get uh, you get a matching card. So you've got a new card in your hand. So your hands get like into these enormous unwieldy things. Like and these 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 piles of cards. This pile of cards is absolutely ridiculous. Like it's hard to manage on <laughs> tabletop simulator where you can actually easily like splay them all out and have them like i cannot imagine playing this in person and having to hold so many cards you wouldn't be able to keep them in your hands basically so you've got to kind of juggle these things to try and work out what's more important for you now and how you're going to get those needs and all of the time you're really secretly just trying to empty your hand just trying to get rid of these cards just trying to like chuck everything away because there's a good chance that if you manage to do that before everybody else has got their engines whirring up and doing everything, you're going to win. Quinn's won by doing that to me. Tom won by doing that to me. I lose every time by thinking like, oh, I can come, I can come up with some really efficient machine here and I can do loads of different things. And then, and then it's like, oh, oh no, you're ending the game. What? <laughs> how, how am I supposed to deal with that? It was funny hearing you mention that, oh, I'm just going to talk about this one wrinkle because when you said that, I had no idea where you were going to go because it's like this is a game made up of wrinkles, like a like an elderly person's face. Because <laughs> with these tiles you're building and you're putting out you know, new factories to produce new types of goods, you don't actually have a ton of space to do that. You also need to think about buying ships, which is another simple little action you can spend on your turn. You can acquire warships, which are going to help you go and peacefully acquire islands somehow, as well as trading ships, which enable you to use trade tokens that the ships give you to acquire goods that you can't make from your friends and give them money and we've talked this far without talking about the festival action which is kind of the heart of the game or at least was for me in my winning strategy because the festival action is where you say i'm not going to do anything this turn and i'm just going to send all of my workers back home back to their square on my board where they live <laughs> so that you can deploy them all again and all of your ships activate as well so Actually, Anno 1800 has this Concordia-like moment of you saying, you know what, I'm going to, I've stretched my engine as far as I can feasibly do it, and now I'm going to stop and take everything back, which is a turn I really, really like in board games when a board game gives the option of saying, you know what, you can just do nothing on your turn and collect everything and have all of your options opened up, which, you know, sometimes I do when it makes strategic sense. Sometimes I do when I just don't want to think anymore <laughs> and I just want to <laughs> let Tom take his turn. Should we say that also this game is pretty good? Like, should we should we get that out there? I had a really nice time playing this. And if people have heard the term Anno 1800 before, that's because this is a video game. This is a board game adaptation of a video game, which means by all rights, should be awful. And it's just not. <laughs> it's not. It's not. I am, I am genuinely irritated by how much the core puzzle of this game, like, gets me. And that first game like it burnt me completely and it really i got like stuck in the cogs of it and i think that tom was worried i was having a panic attack um yeah and for then, quite a lot of that game you were in full-on spiral <laughs> yeah but i was having a whale of a time sorry tom um but yeah the way that you've got to pick a route through the cards that you've got and the tiles on the table and there's there's a couple of people who are watching you the whole time with some bonus points and options for scoring that maybe may or may not be in the game. So each game's a little bit different in that front, as well as working out when 
it's worth building something yourself so you've got ready access to it permanently rather than just trading with the other player i think that there's there's the scope for really high level play where you are like only building a couple of things and being really clever with the way that you're trading stuff and and all of it is fun which is good which is good which is the thing that i like i like being like trapped in this little weird puzzle and grabbing these little tiles and desperately trying to eke out as much as i can out of what is arrayed in front of me and it is it is a solid game for that and i think talking about the way that that core decision in a two-player game which is is it worth investing in industry you know i've got two cards that need snaps in my hand is it, is it worth making that industry on my board or shall i rely on trade versus i've got three or four should i build that industry myself that's the core decision of the two-player game because there's always enough to go around but what's so interesting about the game is that then just immediately just bumping it from two to three players completely changed the landscape where i would often want to go for something and it would already be gone so trading was much more of a necessity in that kind of game the actual core fabric of the game changes by something that always remaining static those two lim the limit of two tiles being the thing that will never ever change in a game i love that so much in board games you know it's one thing to have your board game you know change setup so that it's um ever so slightly different uh and, and but plays basically the same at different player counts it's way better to me to have a setup that is consistent so i don't have to learn a new setup every time but a game is balanced so that when I finished playing it with two, I'm like, oh my goodness, this is going to be so different with three. Mm. And then it becomes another reason to take it off my shelf. Yeah. I love that. And I think alongside that, what the game has in spades is this real arc over your first game of just slow expanding complexity because we've talked about how you know your first cards might have two needs that you know they'll need two of the most basic things and you can fulfill those with the most basic techs on your board right but then as you start getting up that tech tree things that you want are dependent on so many other things and you need more than two needs you need three needs on these cards and their needs are more extravagant and they involve spending these really hard to get investor cubes to make all kinds of inventions and the complexity just crunches up and up and up and the interactions become more and more frequent and it becomes this big complex chunky puzzle and then just ends when someone decides, right, I'm going to burn all my cards. <laughs> yeah, I, let's, we should describe this because I, I, it really threw me off when we played and I find it fascinating. And also I think it might be a bit of a hallmark of Martin Wallace as a designer that rather than have, you know, an arc for the game when it sort of gets a bit tougher, a bit tougher, a bit tougher, then ends. Um, something that Anno 1800 has in common with Brass is halfway through the game, you get an absolute curveball that, that when the game unexpectedly starts. So in Anno 1800, like we were talking about, you know, to begin with, your needs might be want some uh, meat in a can, maybe, maybe a shirt. <laughs> but the cards in your hand are of two varieties. They're those simple people and then what the what the poorly translated we should stress the badly translated version of the game that we were playing has literally poor people cards and rich people cards which is uh which is pretty wild <laughs> but uh so the poor people cards want you know uh shirts and potatoes say but then the rich people cards are like okay i want uh monica what uh penny farthing and what were some of the other cigars and what were some of the other ridiculously high level goods like I steam engines sewing machines steam engines, artillery <laughs> like it could be anything <laughs> and this is beyond the fact that like to get the to get a lot of the high level stuff you need to have investors so investors are like your kind of uber capitalist salt and vinegar seabrook flavors 
to get an investor, you need to spend this ridiculous smorgasbord of stuff that includes a fancy coat, some windows, and a servant. <laughs> <laughs> like it's. Oh, it's... I, I like Tom's read on that, where it's um, a fancy coat and a blood sacrifice of another worker. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, which is actually fairly true, and <laughs> like there is a lot of exploitation being hidden under the surface of this game. Uh, which we'll get into in a bit but like it's also as you are playing it this game is quite funny <laughs> like the fact that you're having like right this person needs canned meat and uh, some soap and then i can upgrade them and it's like what okay that sounds <laughs> great like i'm making dodgy potato hooch over here you can buy it off me if you want uh, whereas i just you, quince you just like desperately wanting anyone but you to make a pair of spectacles in the game. Oh, it was, and he's I like, has anyone made spectacles yet? Has anyone has anyone made spectacles? Is that is that happening? Can you if, if you got glasses like Quinn's, just make them yourself. I think I basically begged you to make cigars that I'm not sure I even used, but I, I was really into the idea that I could buy cigars from you, but I didn't have the space. I really didn't. I remember I kept saying as well at that point. I kept being like, oh yeah, I'll make cigars next turn, Quinn's. I'll make them next turn fully understanding that I would never make cigars in the game <laughs> at any cost. That's good. Um, so we have done nothing but sort of talk about how we enjoyed this game, how it impressed us. Um, I personally, and I feel like this, this sentiment might be shared by you two, I would not buy this game. I would not buy this game and add it to my collection. Um, short answers. Do you two feel the same? I'm not quite sure. Like, I think I might enjoy this enough that I'm going to ignore the obvious problems and just give anyone who I play it with like a distinct lecture on the nature of colonialism <laughs> and exploitation of the working classes. Like, and it's well, sh shall we now say that we would all feel better about this game if it had a different theme? Yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. Right. So let me explain because I'm a big fan of the Anno video game series that this is based on, and specifically Anno 1800, which is the latest in the series. The video game is interesting because it's set in an era where you know there was a tremendous amount of colonialism. Sort of the video game literally has you doing things like setting up rubber plantations, right? But the video game bends over backwards to make it clear that you are not like the other people setting up colonies, even though mechanically you are. In the narrative of the video game, the the colony you set up in like. South America or the Caribbean or wherever, wherever it is, you are creating a town for people who have, for locals who have been exploited in colonies that are set up by your peers. I mean, you can think that's, you know, like acceptable or not, but the board game obviously doesn't have any of this storytelling. So you are just setting up colonies and exploiting local workforces in a way that the board game industry is right now desperately trying to get away from. And here it is, bam, in front of us in a perfectly modern game made by a perfectly modern publisher, which is not great. It's embarrassing. It really buys into the idea that like, oh yeah, no industry, it's all providing jobs and improving improving lives and eventually you get to lift all of the poor poor people out of their out of their doldrums and into into richness and wealth and it's like that's clearly not what's happening. Like underneath every action in this game is like brutal exploitation and just like things like uh, entire classes of people getting left behind because the industry has moved on and wants different things i think it provides like quite a brutal ruthless look at like how grim capitalism can be in that 
it is so much of it is just about owning assets and using those assets to exploit people you don't really even though you've got all of these little faces they're just a tool that you use to further your own uh own ends and there's a there is a grimness here where i don't think it it's hard because it simultaneously glosses over how horrible all of this stuff is and also it's showing you it but it's not it's not quite actually giving a critique of it. You could so easily go into this with a kind of like, oh yeah, isn't it great what uh, people did when we like built all of this industry that brought all of these people out of poverty and like lived to do things. And it's like... No, it's it's very... Um, colonialism was okay because England built the railways in India, actually. It's so... <laughs> it's so boring and depressing to see something come out that has this much excite this many exciting elements to it and this many good ideas in it that is still tied to that narrative we always have this problem it always comes around that we're always finding that we'd rather see a game like this with a more interesting theme without any of these issues you can sidestep having this conversation entirely by just having a different theme you can keep all the mechanics the same and you just put it in space and then it becomes like fun and satirical and weird but it's neither of those it is just boring standard vanilla colonialism in board games where you are a clever businessman and you've come to some random land that was conveniently completely empty and through clever logistics and management, you've become rich and victorious. I mean, it's actually worse than that in this board game because you show up in the new world to set up your plantations of rubber and sugar and tobacco and whatever else, and you are given cards showing locals smiling. Yes. You know, they're, they're having a great time that you're they're there so and their lives glad. have definitely improved since the Europeans arrived, which is now, as we've come to learn with revisionist history, not 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 half as true as we were told. Like, it, it doesn't necessarily come from this like evil, nefarious place. It's just like embarrassing and naive and a little bit ignorant and, and and frustrating because I've used the word embarrassing a few times because it slides what would be like you know a, a game that I would want to show people and a game I would want to bring to the table into into embarrassing territory. It becomes this object of like, oh well, you know, it's a it's. It's a little bit cringe that <laughs> all of this stuff is completely whitewashed over um, in the game. But Ava as well, you know, you found that the game also had some kind of spicy themes in relation to class as well, right? I just, I, I think it's, I think it's the first time in a game I've seen a game that so explicitly like puts a kind of class label on each of the cubes that you are playing with and says like right these are the sort of people who can do this sort of work and if you give them a bit of soap and spam they will possibly be a, <laughs> they'll ha have a wash and be ready to go into the factories and learn how to make spectacles and then if you're really lucky an investor will come along uh, with their fur coat and windows <laughs> and <laughs> graciously invent artillery so that you can build a bigger warship that will harass more people i don't know there's there's a class stratification in this that comes down to like as as explicitly as saying that like the deck of people who are in the more traditional working classes are worth three victory points if you satisfy them, whereas the middle classes and the rich are worth eight victory points. It does explicitly sort of hint that 
if you are of a higher class, you can achieve more things, you have more complicated needs, you are more valuable to all, like, to the people running the... It's, it, it's, a, it's a bit grimy, and it turns people into commodities in a way that it feels like the board game industry was getting away from. It feels like we were st starting to get better at thinking of humans as human beings as opposed to assets to shuffle around and exploit. Yeah, but it is, it is like, there, there's something in the fact that, like, it is... It is being honest about that being the political and economic structure of the era was where people were there to be exploited by those with enough money to buy the factories. Yes, yes. <sighs> and and this is where, you know, it's interesting because uh, we've recently seen a, a, a new version of one of Martin Wallace's most famous games, Brass, as then and Brass Birmingham, the spin-off sequel. Um, but if that felt like such a good bit of... Um, I felt like a very deft production from publishers Roxley Games because they were keen to not make the industrial industrial revolution look like this glossy or desirable thing. The the new versions of Brass are dark and grim and they don't feel like they are encouraging you to uh, sort of participate in this beautiful bountiful growth of industry but rather say this is a thing that happened that you are involved in and we're and it's up to you to decide how you feel about that. Yeah, and I mean, I think that was literally one of the things that I said after we played our game was like, I can't wait for in 10 years time Roxley Games to remake this game uh, <laughs> as something that's just got a bit more awareness and ideally just a different setting and a different place to be in. Not that changing the setting necessarily fixes all of the problems because obviously as long as you are still representing this kind of like stratification of people yeah it's uh, it doesn't it doesn't sit right and yeah tom's right i would be embarrassed to put this in front of a lot of people without a whole heap of caveats and apologies <laughs> and probably some angry ranting about the forces of capitalism in our world <laughs> However, the thing I want to be sure that we don't do is lay all of the blame for this at the publishers and the designer because this is a tie-in of a video game. The theme that we're complaining about and the art assets that we're looking at when we play this game are all taken straight from Anno 1800, the video game. And while I do feel, and I think I said that this is a tremendously good adaptation of a video game, thematically it's not because actually Anno 1800, the video game has all of this very peculiar storytelling to try and justify its colonialism. They know that it's not something that we should be thrilling in. And so in the video game Anno 1800, you are actually setting up a colony for people uh, in the new world who have been exploited by your peers. And yet all of that is lost when you enter the board game and instead you just have the art assets of Anno, which are this weird kind of celebration of industry. And when they show up in a board game, that just feels very wrong. So the whole thing just feels like, as storytelling, very, very messy and very, very unfortunate. It's, it's so weird that this is a game that only exists as a result of the theme that it was licensed to follow. And yet that's the one thing that we're really annoyed about with this game and that we're bored of <laughs> bored of having to complain about because we want to be able to put this in game in front of people that we like and care about, but don't feel comfortable doing that. So that's a bit sad. I would put it in front of my friends, but that's because my friends are worse than your friends. Investors. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I'm probably going to put it in front uh, of my friends, okay. but I'm going to apologize. Yeah, like I say, I'm going to be ranting and raving the whole time about how uh, hideous a worldview it's representing. 
That sounds like a good night, Ava. Hey, do you two want to talk about a little, which is to say, a big old board game called Stroganov? Boy, do I. Tell me all about Stroganov, even though we've already played it, but the listeners need to know about what's going on in it. Tom's being polite because, spoiler, Ava and uh, Tom did not like Stroganov very much. And yet, it comes from a very prestigious designer, uh, Mr. Andreas Stedding, who you may know from uh, Hansa Teutonica or Gugong, which is a game I've now talked about and recommended more than I've actually played. Thanks, Pandemic. Um, so Stroganov is a new uh, big old Euro game that uh, was on Kickstarter from uh, publishers Game Brewer. And it's about Siberia. When was the last time you played a game set in historic Siberia? I know, it's been too long. Um, Stroganov has a theme that I actually do find really interesting and it ties into its mechanics in some very cool ways. So the players, so let's imagine Tom, me and Ava, all have these little lovely wooden horse meeples that are going to start on the left, the west of the board if you will. And you have all of these tiles representing um, bits of the Siberian wilderness. And the Tsar has said, you know what, I bet there's some animals that are worth mad cash over in Siberia. And then you will say, yes, sir. And then in the game, you're going to be sort of driving your wooden horse people, your hunters, east into Siberia. You're going to be setting up outposts, visiting tents of local people, uh, and killing so many animals. <laughs> like, oh my goodness. When was the last time you played a game where sables were a currency? Uh, I have certainly <laughs> played more games that feature Wolverine the X-Man as opposed to Wolverine's the Animal. And Stroganov is uh, takes, is a noble step towards um, changing that ratio. It's loaded with Wolverines. It's packed to the gills with ocelots. Are ocelots in the game? No, I don't think so. Maybe. There's a tiger. There's, tigers are hard to yeah. get. It's, Ava got so excited when I told, told them about the tiger and, and where it was and how to get it. Um, so practically speaking, what you're doing in Stroganov is... Oh, okay, <laughs> I've just realised this is the point uh, in explaining the game where you're going to realise why none of us like it. <laughs> so... Stroganov's turn structure is as follows. You can move east further into Siberia a number of spaces. Then you get one basic action from your shopping list of basic action. Then you can do an advanced action or a basic action. And then you can pay for another advanced action or another basic action. What do you pay? Well, that depends on whether you're doing an advanced or a basic action. Um, I'm not going to get into the weeds of, of Stroganov's incredibly difficult and annoying turn structure. And it's it's tragic that this came from the designer of Hansi Teutonica because it shows how Eurogames in the last 15 years have gone from being so deliciously straightforward to absolutely monstrous uh, in terms of complexity. But if I were to describe Stroganov, basically, I would say it's a game about racing to go east so you can get access to all the nice, lovely animal pelts before your friends. Um, while trying to sort of claim territory, because there's a very interesting mechanic where as more and more pelts get taken off each particular piece of landscape, you can actually acquire the entire land itself, picking up almost part of the board and then lifting that with any animals that are still on it onto your uh, player board. And what are you doing all of this for? Well, you're partially doing it because pelts uh, can help you fulfill sets that the Tsar has requested. You're partially doing it because landscapes are worth victory points at the end of the game. You're partially doing it because whoever gets furthest east will write the best song. And uh, and this is the last thing I'll say about the structure of Stroganov, because I, I really, really like this mechanic. You all push really far east and you set up outposts and you take animals 
And then, that's the end of your season, you all go back to the Tsar's palace court for winter, you all write songs, which is a kind of weird minigame, and significantly less fun than it sounds. <laughs> but then when the next year begins, and it's a three-year game, you go back to the farthest west reaches of Siberia. Basically, it's this fun thing of you push really far east, and then you reset. Then you push really far east, then you reset, and you do it a third time. But each time there's going to be less animals, uh, but there's always going to be a tiger. There's always a tiger added to the furthest rightmost tile in Siberia, and the tiger is a wild animal literally and figuratively <laughs> because it's a resource that you can use to act like it's any other kind of pelt i really wanted to like this i did Same. Uh, it has a it has an art style which i would describe as not great but very brave and very stylistic very unique looking and it's got a theme that's very unique and it's got a designer who's very cool and what did you two think of strong enough obstacles the whole game yeah. is complete and utter obstacles like no that's not that's not bad the game is the game was great in a way and i think that there were things here that i would like to see tried again and like i loved the kind of thematic structure of it that you've talked about and i loved a few little bits of it but what the game felt like was very arbitrary obstacles being in front of anything that you were trying to do and it like the the main thing for me here is the fact that these furs are essentially the currency of the game um and you can get furs from all of these different animals and they've all got a number on them so it tells you like so obviously tigers are absolutely the best because they're and they're completely wild and below that you've got enormous bear pelts that are and wolverines and all of these different like hierarchy like right from bunnies bunnies and foxes <laughs> to wolverines i don't know it's so <laughs> there's a thematic thing now like as a vegan i was like okay right let's just do this let's get as much fur as possible and wrap myself <laughs> in it and that'll be fun i've never seen someone try and kill a tiger as fast I, as I, I, I got <laughs> that tiger surprisingly quickly it you was did? hard work and then i got my second tiger and i stole it from right under your nose and that was really oh. satisfying oh yeah but, yeah but 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 the problem that i had with this game was each of those furs is effectively its own currency for buying one particular set of things. Like there, there will be a yes. region where uh, bunny pelts are valued the most and there'll be a region where wolverine pelts are valued the most. And because you have to move through these regions linearly, that means that a lot of turns, it's all a question of whether you can get far enough to be in the place where you can actually use the stuff that you've got already and then realizing oh that's just getting me more of stuff that i need to be further behind on the line to use so can i use that and there are ways around that like putting outposts in areas behind you will mean that you'll be able to always trade in that area and things like that and i want it to be interesting and like i know that i think tom did a better job of finding the ways around it because if you if you put some <laughs> money with a fur you can treat it as if it's any any fur that is less valuable is that right or we haven't even mentioned we've we literally talked about the fact that furs are a currency but also there, there is, is also money, money. <laughs> there is also horses which is a, another currency and it's basically like yeah there's eight different things that you might be paying for to do each action even if it's the same action in a different place it might cost you more of something different to pay for it and i just found it so like unsatisfying to play as a result of this because it wasn't a question of like oh what shall i do what shall i do it's like what can i do 
oh, I can only do that. Will that get me anywhere? Is there a way to make that a bit more efficient? And then I'll spend like a minute or two being like, is there a better option? And each option requires you to puzzle out whether you've got the right currency for it, whether that's actually better than the opportunity cost of doing something else. And at down at the tactical level, it just feels like it is constantly putting obstacles in front of you while not really giving you a whole range of strategic options to think about like and yeah i don't know it it didn't land for me i would love to know what tom thinks although just before uh that i will say exactly what you're saying ava is what i find frustrating about more recent vital lacerda designs like the gallerist or lisboa um where it's 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 just difficult more than it is rewarding or exciting mm. uh, and uh, i think that all those currencies are part of the reason for that the fact that you can only do certain actions in certain places uh tom how did you well, feel this is the thing when you're talking about all these currencies and i didn't mind there being so many currencies because i think that each section of that currency matrix means that you've got a euro game where you can gun for like your thing right and i love a euro game where you can gun for your your thing and my thing that game was just nabbing territories at literally any cost and that was my objective was to get nice sets of things i heard that one of the scoring criteria was having matching sets and that's all i focused on for the whole game and i find that really rewarding in a euro game if you can focus down on one specific task it gives the whole swamp of the game focus and you can navigate a route through it and it lends the game replayability. You're finding out, you're experimenting with how hard you can go down one alleyway in a really rewarding way. And Stroganov is good at doing that. There are lots of ways of approaching this puzzle, but goodness, it can get so, so swampy because there are so many opportunities to do something more on your turn by spending one of these many resources. They're not independent of each other, so you can always do a little bit extra by spending a little bit extra. But every turn, yeah. you're asking yourself that question. You're, you're saying, could I spend a little bit more to do this? Should I do it now? Should I do it later? Should I do it next season? Should I save? You know, that's so true. In, in, in Andreas' uh, previous game, Gugong, um, you would play a gift. You would give a gift to a particular Chinese dignitary in one region of the board. But then once you decided you were doing that, the, the, you get two actions, one, the region you're going to, and another being the gift. So your turns are relatively simple. And I think what really messed me up in Stroganov is I would go, okay, this turn, I'm definitely going to take two steps towards here and kill the fox. It's like, great, you've got the fox. But then because of the turn structure, it's like, okay, but what advanced action are you going to do? Mm. And you go, oh, I, oh, oh, I, I planned this bit of my turn, but not this other bit, which makes the game so much slower because, you know, we were literally asking each other, Oh, have you finished your turn? Are you sure you don't want to pay extra for a basic action? <laughs> and you hadn't considered that, but you're like, oh, well, hang on, let yeah. me think. And that makes the game so stop-starting. It's such a horrible thing to do to the rhythm of the game, to have every single turn end with the question, do you want to pay to do the same thing a little bit more now? Because it means every single turn comes grinding to that, oh, okay, right, I've done what I did. And like, it's so the opposite of uh, Anno, where like each turn you do the thing, you're done and then you've got the next round to think about what you're going to do with Stroganov you do the thing then you do the other thing then you can do another thing oh wait just give me a second (laughs) (laughs) don't forget that you can what is it when you're hunting you can pay coins to take like everything has these little sub flow charts so Mm. if you do action a do you want to do a (laughs) point one no okay do you want to do b c or d 
D. Okay, do you want to do D twice? You know, it's yes, like yeah, yeah. It, I was thinking of it as like a a decision. I was thinking of both of these games as like an actual like decision tree with like one node at the start, at the start of your turn, and maybe like the the four options coming off that node of all things you can do, and then those individual nodes producing more and more and branching out in that way. Right. The difference between Stroganov and Anno is that the actual branches, each branch going from one node to the other, is so much shorter. And that means that in Anno, you can be like, right, I'm going to go from there to there to there to there to there. And you're pinging across really quickly. But in Stroganov, you're setting up this big row of thought dominoes that you've got to knock down and set up every single turn because of the way the board state changes and because of how big the implications can be of each individual node on that tree. It reminds me of Lisboa uh, a little bit. The... Um... <sighs> Uh, to put it slightly simpler it's the thing that would was really messing me up matt up when we played lisboa is you would be doing something in your turn then you'd realize you couldn't do it like oh i'm gonna i'm gonna go build this building oh i can't do that because i don't have enough frogs where do i get frogs again mm. and then you know it's it's having to double back mm. it's like realizing that your mind went into a dead end and then having to back the car up while all the other players are waiting. This might be nonsense. No, no, I no. I think I think that's that's a perfectly good analogy for, for how this functions. Where it, you're in Anno, then uh, which which you know we're conveniently comparing to because in the same podcast, there's much of this sort of think as you go mentality where you know you can build something because you know that you'll need it at some point, and it probably isn't a waste of a turn, and you're definitely going to need that thing. So you might as well just build it now, and then the next person can take their go while you then think what the next little micro step is going to be. Whereas Stroganov, yeah, you're right. It's like, how do I get that thing? Well, that's a whole extra process. Is it worth me spending my whole turn doing that? Maybe, maybe not. Can I get it along the way? Oh, I need to set up the dominoes again. And I've built this horrible track of dominoes that I'm going to have to knock down and set up all over again. Oh my goodness. Nightmare time. And you don't even realise that like, by selling a Wolverine now, you might be removing one of your dominoes from like half an hour <laughs> in the future. So the game is asking you, like, ah. Oh, a Wolverine now is worth two in the hand. Yeah, is, I've got a Wolverine now. I can use that to do this thing a bit more efficiently. Oh, I'll do that. And then being like, oh, no. Like, such a long time later, <laughs> being like, oh, no, without that Wolverine, I can't do this thing. Where are their Wolverines? Oh no, there's no Wolverines anywhere. <laughs> like I distinctly remember the first turn we all took in Stroganov. We all, you know, it's like, oh wow, we've arrived in Siberia. And we all chased our horses off into different sections of wilderness. And it was so thematic and exciting. And Tom was in the mountains and I was in a river. And the first question, the first thing you do naturally is hunt. So you get a dead animal. And then the game asks you, do you want to spend a coin to hunt again? And you start with one coin. And I think all three of us went, yeah because then you get another animal and you've got a card in your hand at the start of the game it's like oh the sar wants these animals um and it wasn't until like 15 20 minutes later that we we're like ah that coin is actually way more useful than <laughs> yeah. any of us thought and like that's that i'm sure is a perfectly natural experience for people who play board games but it doesn't often happen to us because we play so many that we're usually you know we can kind of guesstimate the value of a coin but stroganov is so like multifaceted and weird and wonky that we that we just couldn't and we all made the same mistake and the mistake didn't matter but the fact that we couldn't see the mistake is is i guess what i'm getting at yeah i think it's that thing of like these currencies are all worth different things at different times in different moments but there is very little you can't predict what those are going to be well i did feel that i would i was if I, if we'd had a better time, I would have been excited to play Stroganov a second time, knowing. What yeah, I, did. I still think I would like to play it again at some point in in the real life with my fingers and hands. 
because I think it might be a puzzle that like opens up a lot more once you've been through it once and you kind of have a better idea of what's there but for, for a game's first experience to just be kind of hammering your head against a brick wall made of wolverine pelts <laughs> I, I don't know i have one final note that i've written down here that i want to say which is i felt like i could explain what's interesting I, well when teaching the game i did explain what was interesting about stroganov to you two in about 15 minutes but the teach kept going for another 15 <laughs> minutes if or possibly yeah. 20 minutes i think what's interesting and exciting about stroganov is 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 part of what the game is and then the rest is just is just like it's just crunch it's just work it's what ava said yeah. it's obstacles yeah. yeah there's interesting stuff in there like at, at its very core is interesting stuff in there but the faff that's around it doesn't make it something that i would want to play again to get to that juiciness when i can just play a game which is just all juice 24/7 juice picture if you two will that you're you're sweeping a floor mm -hmm. you know like and you know if you're sweeping like a corridor or something you know you will probably start at one end and sweep everything towards the other end and then but you'll have to like go over the same space twice that's what i really like about stroganov structure <laughs> that like the way that you you can't go backwards without spending horses so you're pushing from west to east trying to like cherry pick the animals you want but it means I love that in year two, you're kind of sweeping over the same territory, but there's less animals. Mm. And it's there are less animals where you all made those decisions. I think that's really interesting and juicy. And the fact I had such a good moment in this game where Tom actually somehow found the time to build an outpost, which means that in future years, you can take actions in some other region of Siberia where your horse isn't. And I hadn't built an outpost and Tom was doing actions off in the depths of Siberia when I couldn't. I had to take my horse there. I found that so mm. exciting. <laughs> I think... I find this as exciting as people say that Takedo is, the, the famous game of walking from left to right in Japan and having a nice time. I, I really like the sweeping west to east through Siberia mechanic of this. If that sense of like adventure and uh, economy was just less bitty and more like in your face and kind of there, like the core the core structure here is something that I could, could get really excited about. But in this game, it's felt like there was too much effort put into making every decision be annoying rather than fun that's unfair <laughs> maybe that's not unfair i think andrea steading can do better yeah. i will say that there's really interesting stuff here it just didn't it just doesn't land and like i would love to see what he does with this game if he redesigns it into something a little bit sharper and smaller I'm just so excited to play the expansion for Gugong, Gugong Panjun, which is looking at me right now. Oh, I want to play Gugong one day. I've heard that's quite good from Quinn's over and over and over again. <laughs> over and over and over again, yeah. You know what, Tom? You know what? It's quite good. Ah, uh, so I've heard. That is all we have got in our bodies for this episode of the <laughs> Shut Up and Sit Down podcast has everyone tom. had a nice time tom what? something so much more important what? than having a nice time you published a cubitos review uh, that old chestnut i did indeed tom tom yes what i really liked your cubitos oh, well that's review. great because you know that we haven't fit we you you yeah look at all this pressure going onto my small brain to put out a good cubitos review because we're recording this before cubitos comes out on friday ho, ho, ho. Brutal. 
But yeah, I'm sure it was brilliant. <laughs> I'm sure the world went mad for my Kivito's review. I am 100% sure that it is brilliant. Well, that's I'm very 100% kind. sure. I am so excited for this review. I'm so excited for that game. <laughs> and you're, you've nailed it. I know you've nailed it because you oh, nail everything. Thanks that we put in front of you i just whoa that it's a family show (laughs) (laughs) if you want to see me uh you'll get to see me caked in green face paint uh for several moments in that video and i'm also rolling lots of dice and holding a ladle and that's about that's is that it is that it that's on our youtube channel that's on our youtube channel uh... that we upload to every week except for last week it's quite popular now, that, that YouTube Is channel. It? It's the most popular YouTube channel in board games. I mean, I, I guarantee there will be people listening to this podcast who don't know we are now the biggest board game YouTube channel. Listen They'll be like, second after, second after the Dice Tower. Not true anymore. Ooh. Not true anymore. The Dice Tower is a tower-shaped object in our rear-view rear mirror. Next stop, uh, Top Gear. The, I don't know. What's next? Who, we're going to go for Top Gear. Was top uh, gear. Yeah. You want to... Let's, <laughs> You want to? I want to over. Let's let's see how many subscribers the Top Gear YouTube channel has, <laughs> and that and that can. Are you our Jeremy Clarkson, Quins? Ah, oh, it's got seven point eight seven million that's, subscribers. That's quite that's a few. <laughs> I want the BBC One Top Gear slot, but it's shut up and sit down every week. Imagine people tuning in to watch uh, a man sit in a car and drive it really fast. And instead, to man sitting in a copy of Cubitos and crashing <laughs> into a wall. Thank you very much for listening, everyone. And we will see you for another episode of the podcast next week. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.